Greetings and welcome once again to another episode of the Retro Reductibus Cephala Podcast, the only show that celebrates all the things that made growing up awesome. We are part of the Dorkening and we are here right now, brought to you as always by Deadly Grounds Coffee. And uh, you're listening to an episode of our bonus show, The Brig. And with me, I am your host, by the way. Uh, my name is Parasite Steve, but you know that. With me today is my co-host, 8-Bit Alchemy. Say hello, 8-Bit. Hello, 8-Bit. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was very literal of you, which I enjoy. You're welcome. Um, yes. I like to give the people what they want. They, they love it when you're extra literal. That's, that's they, like the that's, best thing. That, that's what they need, you know, that's in these uncertain times. You need yes, literally. Yeah, you do. Uh, and literally, right now, we have an amazing guest right now uh, waiting in the brig. I hope it's kind of comfy down there. I did dust. I put down, like, uh, some people get the best they get is like a, like a pillow. But for you, for you, I actually, I actually put a chaise down there, and there's like a little like side a, table like with some one, one package of, like, saltine crackers down in no, the no, brig? There's, no, there's crumpets. There's, uh, there's oh, crumpets you did down. crumpets this time. Nice. Yeah, yes. Uh, and who I'm talking about, we have industry-leading concept artist Terrell Whitlatch. Terrell, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm doing very well. Thank you. And thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. So I, I hope you're enjoying the, the, the chaise and the crumpets. Oh, it, it's very wonderful. I feel like I'm down here in da- Downton Abbey. So it's very nice. <laughs> oh, so cozy. Spent like all day on that yesterday. You, oh. you don't even know. It took, you know, it took the afternoon off. It's, Bought the crumpets himself. I'm happy you appreciate our digital. Yeah. Uh, our I digital especially break. like the maid and the butler. <laughs> I mean, you oh, still have. man. You still have the locked iron bars, though. I'm sorry about those. But hey, you know, it wouldn't be a brig otherwise. Right. We'll let you out in like an hour or so. <laughs> okay. So for those of you who might not recognize your name, um, you, were, you are a pretty impressive lady, let me just say. And you are uh, a woman that I have been a, a honestly, truly big fan of for about 20 years. Um, you are the lead creature designer on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. You are also the illustrator of many incredible books. I have numerous of these, uh, including The Wildlife of Star Wars, A Field Guide, Principles of Creature Design, Animals, Real and Imagined, Science of Creature Design, and the recently re-released The Cataran Odyssey, which I know we want to be, uh, you would like to talk about later, which is just an amazing book, and the upcoming Flying Monsters, which you, uh, you mentioned to me about, but I don't know anything about, so I'm dying to dig into Flying Monsters. <laughs> I'll be glad to tell you more about that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I'll be glad to, uh, to purchase and uh, digest said flying monster book. You basically don't even need to tell us anything about it. We'll probably buy it's, it. But. It's Terrell Whitlatch. I'm there. I mean, that's, that's been my rule for, uh, for about two decades. Um, so if you don't mind, Terrell, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? I, I see that on your, I think on your art station, it says you're from Albany, but uh, your Facebook says Oregon. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, it's Albany, Oregon, as opposed to Albany, New York. Oh, that's, that's, oh, that's funny. I could have looked into yeah. a little bit more and not <laughs> seemed like a fool right now. But, you know, I seem like a fool all the time. It's fine. It's, it's genuine. It's very on brand for me. <laughs> Keeps it real. Well, so Albany, to make Oregon. You, if it makes you feel any better, um, Albany, Oregon was named after Albany, New York, because the founders back in the 1840s were originally from Albany, New York, and they made the trek across our vast continent and ended up here on the, the, in the North Pacific Northwest. They're like, they're we like only hey, know you know what's thing? a good name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Albany was a good place. Let's do that again. <laughs> 
It's like the European settlers that came over here and they're like, oh, it's a brown bird. We'll call it a robin. And the other ones there are like, we no, go. we already have those. And they're like, no, these will be robins too. <laughs> it's fine. Come it's up a bird with a new name. name? No, it's fine. It's robin. So, so yeah, Terrell, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. And how you got, like, what's your background for getting into all this? Because your, your creature design is so singular in my mind. And um, it, it is, it, you, you know, you are very much one of those artists who um, I can pick your stuff out of a lineup any day of the week. You know, anytime I see something that's, uh, that, you know, for instance, you had done that series, uh, I, I don't know, a couple years ago of like dinosaurs as the Avengers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just for fun, I think. I don't know what that was from, but I, I, I saw them, uh, you know, just kind of floating on Facebook. Somebody was, uh, you know, posting them and mm-hmm. they didn't have your name attached. And I'm like, that is Terrell Whitlatch right there. <laughs> and I looked more into it and it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It totally was. <laughs> yeah. You had yeah, like Iron Man as an Ankylosaurus and uh, <laughs> Triceratops Thor. And, well, you know, I just thought, what's at the time, what's really popular right now? Well, of course, it was, you know, the first Avengers movie and then dinosaurs are always popular. So I thought, you know, makes yeah. sense to kind of put them together and get something that might be even more popular. Right, do a mashup, exactly. <laughs> right, just very fun. So how did you get into, like, studying creatures to the level that you do? Because your, your understanding of their anatomy is just absolutely singular to me. Uh, how, how did you get into all that? Like, what is your background in general? Oh. Well, my background is actually in the sciences and not in art. So I have a lot more science education than I do art education. Um, I majored in vertebrate zoology and with the intent on becoming a natural history illustrator. And I wanted, you know, ever since I was a very young person, I had visions of doing illustrations for like say National Geographic or Smithsonian Institution or Scientific American or things like that. I just loved animals so much and zoology, anything having to do with them and their world. And so that was my focus. I I love learning about them and I loved drawing about them. And I just wanted to know, just to be able to understand them inside and out. And my, my favorite artists starting from about age, I don't know, five or six, when I was able to realize that, that there were illustrators out there, um, were artists of that ilk. Um, um, they, the artists that did the wonderful murals of the Cenozoic mammals at the Smithsonian Institution, his name is, he's still living, his name is Jay Maternes. Beautiful work. I mean, that just captured my imagination big time. Um, other artists, like wonderful wildlife artists, like Bob Kuhn. Absolutely superb way of just capturing the soul of an animal. And then there's another artist, a little bit maybe obscure, but in his day still well known. He did a lot of field guides. Um, of uh, primarily Western mammalian species, and his name was his um, William, William D. Berry, beautiful draftsmanship. Mm. And so those three artists, <clears throat> they just influenced me a lot and said, and the, their art said, look at the animal, look at the animal and understand them and look at the animal not through a human filter. Mm-hmm. Look at the animal on its own terms, the animal doing what the animal wants to do, not what we think it, it should do. Mm. Right. It's, it's like using, you know, art as a way, as like a substitute for photography, you know, yeah. it's like rather than 
painting something and, and having it be interpretive it's it's almost just like a direct representation of the creature that you forget you're looking at art you you, mm-hmm. you think yeah. that you're just observing the creature and that is so much of what you see in you know mm-hmm. museums like the smithsonian and, and yeah. it, it is something that has always impressed me because you you know so many people come in and out of the museum and they almost take it for granted you know because it's such like it's such a realistic depiction that you forget mm-hmm. somebody had to get in the headspace of this creature to the extent that they could depict it in a way that you don't even think of it as a painting you're just looking at it like it's an example of this creature which is incredible right another another really famous one is uh rudolph f salinger's uh age of reptiles Mm -hmm. Uh, absolutely at yale have you ever seen it in person i haven't seen it in person but i certainly have seen reproductions of it and which also reminds me when i was a very little girl about age five my my father who and my, my parents took me, they were always taking me to the local zoo and, and the museum. This was near San Francisco. And so mm-hmm. we'd go to the San Francisco Zoo and to the Oakland Zoo on a regular basis. And also to the California Academy of Sciences in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Um, and they had wonderful natural history displays. Mm-hmm. And they had, a, and also, of course, there was the, there was the museum, you know, bookstore, you know, gift store. Yes. And there's this great, wonderful book called the big book of dinosaurs the golden book of dinosaurs and they had mm-hmm. right there rudolph zalinger's painting of this brachiosaur yep. and I, i'm like yep. oh. and my parents bought it for me i still have the book oh I wonderful still have the book. <laughs> yeah actually the so so we're pretty close to yale uh, a couple hours away we're in massachusetts uh-huh. and um so we've been to this museum a few times and this is mm. one of my favorites um and it really is amazing how big this is, this painting, this, you know, this was something that I had seen a million times before. You know, I remember in high school, one of my science teachers had it on the wall, had a poster of it. And uh, so seeing it in person was just like seeing the Mona Lisa to me. And, uh, and it's amazing that um, he was able to, you know, this is the first sort of painting that I personally had ever seen where it was sort of like, let's, not worry about the fact that these creatures wouldn't be so close together. Probably mm-hmm. we're just going to cram as many things into right. this landscape as possible, just because we want to show as much as we can. And that's sort of what I get from your book, the Cataran Odyssey, which I want to yes. talk about more later, but that yes. is sort of where I, you know, I said to you in messenger, every p- every page on that book is a feast for the eyes. <laughs> literally you can spend, I literally don't know how you did it. Like it, I'm in such awe of your talent because every single square centimeter of that those pages has something amazing to see and you can't even count i don't know how long that book took you i'm i'm dying to get to that but we'll get to we'll talk star wars first but All right. um but age of reptiles is you know to a lesser degree that same sort of idea and i actually uh-huh. on my fridge i have a um i my, my favorite is the triceratops I'm oh, a, of course people who know yeah. me i'm i'm that is my my favorite thing ever is my favorite animal my favorite dinosaur um, so everything Triceratops is I buy and, mm-hmm. uh, I have a little magnet on my fridge. Uh-huh. That's just the, just the detail, the close of the little Triceratops is in the corner yeah. of the flowers. And it right. really is the sort of thing, like you said, the Brachiosaurus, you can take so many zooms of that one painting mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. create all these different a significant pieces. standalone piece of art, just yeah. like that. Like any one, you know, fi- like five inch by five inch sections, yeah. like that's right. a masterpiece. That's yeah. a masterpiece. Right. And it's just all across. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. And, and not just the animals, but the plants. 
Yes. yes. I know, like, very realistic depictions of all the ferns and all the different, you know, like, you know, ancient plants that are just so real. They're so vibrant and lush, and you're like, oh, my gosh, yeah. You know, and, and that's another thing I think is just take it. You take it for granted because you're looking at the dinosaurs, right? But it's like, mm-hmm. no, there's as much thought into the species of plants that are there as well. Yes, absolutely. And just aside, that that room also has um, an Archeron skeleton, mm-hmm. which is a giant sea turtle. Yeah, which I believe is in is definitely it's, it's in Cataran. Sure. Yeah, sure. going across the sea. Uh-huh. Yes, and uh, there was a, I was actually looking at with with my daughter, and we were looking through Cataran this morning, and um, and I was just showing her all these different pages, and she hadn't really looked at the book before, I guess, and um, and we got to the page with all the sea creatures moving across. Uh-huh. And uh, she's like, what is that? And, it's, uh, and I'm like, oh, that's a Dunkleosteus. And she's uh-huh. like, what? <laughs> I'm like, well, Terrell knows. A very vicious looking fish. Right, with sure. these big plates of teeth, you know, this yes. just massive, you know, gnashing plates. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't want to be caught in a dark alleyway with a Dunkleosteus. Yeah, yes. and that, that to me is like also like sidebar. What I love about that book is it's so full of... The creatures that when I was a little kid, I was always drawn to animals and I was always drawn to the weirder animals, like mm-hmm. uh, not the cats and dogs and puppies and bunnies yeah. and, and mice and all the stuff you see in, in most Disney cartoons and cartoons in general. Yeah. It's boring to me. Like I want to learn about these, you know, give me an aardvark, give me a, I don't know, even a narwhal or whatever. Um, yeah. And as a kid, I actually had this experience. This really happened to me <clears throat> in third grade. I... Um, we were supposed to draw pictures of animals uh-huh. and um, everybody had just puppies and dogs and kitties and bunnies. And mm-hmm. I had an aardvark. <laughs> and so uh, the teacher came to me and was like, what is this? And I'm like, this is an aardvark. Uh-huh. And she's like, that's not a real thing. You need to draw something real. Oh my gosh. Third grade teacher. Third grade third teacher is this wrong. This is Massachusetts. I know. Absolutely like wrong. Bad schooling bad school systems so uh, i I have i have to throw my i have to throw my hat into uh into this conversation as well because i had such a similar thing happen to me when i was actually in first grade and this this uh one of your pictures in your art station makes me think of it so that the andy narwhal i just adore him he's fantastic (laughs) and fabulous uh yeah so I, i i had a similar thing where we were supposed to all tell what our favorite animal was and you know i was a little kid and being steve's brother i was into all the same kinds of exotic animals and stuff and i i said that my favorite animal was a narwhal and and i got the same reaction the teacher was like what you're like what are you talking about i said it's a narwhal it's like and and then you start to try to explain it and you're like it's like a whale with a unicorn horn and it sounds crazy uh, when i say it i know that i'm not making a good case for myself but this is a real animal and and like i just got i i actually got put in time out because i was making stuff up and i'm like oh my god i'm not wrong i'm just a child i know i'm not credible but i know that a narwhal is real i've seen them yes (laughs) And, and it's David just Atten- preposterous. Yeah, and David Attenborough could attest to that. So, you know. <laughs> I know. And, uh, like, I mean, David Attenborough is respected by everybody. So, if only I could have name dropped him at the time. But I was very <laughs> upset. I was like, I feel like I just got hated on because I'm a kid. And uh-huh. I, did not, I did not make that up. <laughs> that is so maddening. I know. Uh-huh. It really is. It's so yeah. ignorant. But, you yeah. Um, 
what type of bubble you know our educators live in i know seriously there's so many great creatures out there in the world but um yeah i mean i i've i've been i've browsed your art station a number of times and i i do love andy narwhal what was what was like your thought process behind that were you just feeling you know like it's a fun pun you know it's a saucy day that day Yes, well, it was actually, you know, a part of a little book series that um, I did for Imagination International. Oh, oh nice. And, uh, and um, so there's there's a whole series of these, and I have some of the, the little books uh, of animals just because it was fun to do punny animals. We also made some adult coloring books out of the illustrations as well. But oh, cool. I, you know, Andy Nar- Narwhal and... Leopardo da Vinci and he's this very happy leopard who's painting the pony Lisa you know it's <laughs> oh he's he's in your art station as well yeah right? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Leopardo yes yeah. Nice. yeah and uh, so that's just a lot of fun we had um you know um um Vincent van Gogh for example oh sure I mean you gotta have a Vincent van Gogh yeah. you have to yeah, but <clears throat> yeah. all these animals, the thing that kind of ties them together, and there's always these little visual tells, is that every one of them has some sort of alcoholic beverage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like his little martini. <laughs> yeah, he's got the little martini with, like, the narwhal stem, and it's poking yeah, through the it's olive. It's, very... it's a nartini. Oh, the nartini. <laughs> the nartini. <laughs> very good. Awesome. Um, so, so good. Um. Yeah, just it's just awesome, and I love how you know I love trying to pick apart. I it's it's like a little bit of a challenge to me, but when you do come up with um, imaginary creatures, which is uh-huh. a lot of obviously what you do as well, yeah. um, like f- just taking another example from your um, art station, you have the Diplobub, which oh, is yes. which is this just immensely awesome whale sized uh, looks whale sized to me anyway. This big yeah, water creature. Yeah. Um, and it very much has that hammerhead head shape of, um, I can't remember what it's called. I know it's Diplo something. Diplocolis. Diplocolis. And it was a salamander type little creature. Yeah, a Permian air amphibian. Awesome. I yep. love those things. I love those things. And uh, I'm actually an author and uh, I, I work a lot of this creature stuff into what I do as well. Cool. And uh, I actually had a reference to the Diplocolis. Diplocolis. Is uh-huh. Diplocolis? Yes. I can, see, now in my head, I wasn't sure if I changed the name slightly no, it's, or it's if di- I, I think I just used Diplocolis. It's just, it's just mentioned. But I love those, that, that hammerhead salamander. And this is, <laughs> so, so for me, looking at this creature, I'm like, okay, well, you got the hammerhead salamander head. Yeah. And then you have like, like this eel sort of a body. Uh-huh. And, uh, but with like some extra, extra appendages on the eel, uh, eel tail at the end. And it's just so incredibly fun. Oh, and then this, okay. Then the side of the body it has that rippled look like the giant Japanese sa- salamanders. Exactly. Yeah. The there hellbenders. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. The hellbenders, the coolest name of any <laughs> creature on earth, the hellbender. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Japanese <laughs> hellbender. <laughs> Um, so that to me is like one of the, one of my favorite things about, uh, looking at your imagined creatures. I always try to like, see if I can figure it out. Like, and, and Mm -hmm. it's not always one-to-one. I mean, plenty of stuff you just come up with, but yeah, it's fun. It's good stuff. (laughs) It's really amazing stuff. Um, so, so Tim, do you want to go into, um, we talked about zoology already. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we talked about, you know, your background and, and how you had started initially, um, you know, studying from a scientific background, which I think is 
is definitely one of the the things that stands out so much about your body of work is that it comes from such a, a profound scientific understanding of creatures and anatomy and everything like that. And um, I think that's what gives you know so much life in realism to all the creatures that you design because as fantastic as they are they're all grounded in real concepts they're grounded in you know actual um you know functions so like i guess you know how you know if you were going to sit down and draw a creature you know just kind of come up with one you know do you come at it from a place of you know what kind of world would it live in what kind of environment or like i guess what's your thought process when you're designing something well my thought process, I think, almost subconsciously is first thing. It's like, well, where does it live? Mm-hmm. Or at least if it's not the first thing I think about, it, it's certainly the second one. So let's even pretend I'm just kind of doodling around and I'm kind of drawing some shapes. Oh, that's a cool shape. I like that. I bet. Th- and then my next thought immediately is I bet this animal will live in the high desert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that, that's very, very early on in, in the process of developing a creature because – when you think about where you, an animal lives, then automatically, automatically gives you insights and in what they can do, mm-hmm. and what they might look like, and what they would need to survive. And then that that just are all these little layers that keep cementing authenticity, just automatically. And, right. Uh, yeah. Uh huh. Right, exactly, because you're not coming at it from a place of, I want to draw something that looks cool. Because right. like, I feel like that is so much of design, right, is trying to make something aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. But your, your thought process is, okay, I want, to, I want to create something that feels real, mm-hmm. and I want to build it in a way that I've seen you know, proven with mm-hmm. you know, real zoology. And, yeah. and, and then go, okay, it would have this kind of you know, limb structure, these gills, this sort of head shape, all that. And that's just like the coolest thing to me because so many creatures in, uh, you know, I don't know, various bodies of work, but I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, you know, video game fan and so many Uh different creatures are just like, there's no way that thing could be real. Like that just doesn't in any way seem plausible. And you know, that, that keeps it removed, but also it makes it less immersive. Um, and so I think that is, is definitely, I mean, it has to be one of the the most distinct traits of of everything I've seen from your work, um, and yeah, I mean, there's there's actually there's a number of of references that I could point to of things. I'm curious if you have an opinion on uh, from a design standpoint. I don't know. I don't know, Steve. Can we can we get into that yet? I don't know. How how do you want to how do you want to pace this? Because um, I'm excited. I, think, I, I just I th- I think we're here. So let's just let's just do let's, it. Let's just do it. Okay. Organically, so, we're here. <laughs> organically we're here um so so i like i said I'm, I'm a big you know fan of games and things and so one of the series that has stuck out the most to me as far as uh creatures that feel believable is a series called monster hunter and i don't oh. know if you're familiar with that at all yeah um, I, I i've seen some of the work i haven't, seen, I haven't looked at it recently but i am mm-hmm. familiar with um some of the work through the years yes uh-huh Awesome. So yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those franchises where, you know, it's like the whole point of the games is to be hunting these things and, and using their, their parts to craft things and whatever. And it's, it's very, you know, video gamey. There's always some kind of violence associated with it. But the thing I think I respect so much about it is that the team of, of designers takes these creatures and they say, okay, you know, where do they live? What do they have? You know, what kinds of 
niche do they need to fulfill? And when you actually look at them, you know, I think so many people who play the game just appreciate it from, you know, a satisfaction standpoint. But I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how they're able to create something that feels so real. And I was just curious, you know, like the fact that you're familiar with it is is great. And and I, I like almost just wanted an opinion of any of the things that you've seen from it, or if you've had the opportunity to work on, you know, any kind of games like that from a design standpoint or anything like that yes um with monster hunter one thing i i do enjoy is that it just there's it it feels really viscerally solid and when Mm -hmm. you have that then you can get drawn into it in some much more immediate experience than say a purely fantasy creature like in a magical place right because we all know really that we we really can't go off and live in you know in the Emerald City, so to speak, or in exactly. the land of Harry Potter, as much as we enjoy those stories, um, we can't really, really go there, and not in the way we can go to a place like with Star Wars or Star Trek. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and so there, there is that sort of removal. But with games, you know, you know, like Monster Hunter, for example, you feel like, gosh, you know, this animal—it's like an elephant. It's like a whale. It's like a hippopotamus. It's like something that's like these things. And I've seen those things. If if we're so fortunate to be able to travel or to go to a zoo or at least see them, you know, on, on, um, on video, it's like, okay, it's, if those exist, then it's kind of like these sort of exist. And we know that dinosaurs existed. And so that kind of brings us closer to, being immersed in it, it um, kind of breaks that wall a bit better than say, it's um, we're going to go to Mount Olympus and and mm-hmm. visit you know, Zeus and all those people and 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 and, and look at their you know chimeric um, creatures, which we know really can't happen. I mean, I I love, um, I do very much enjoy say the pastoral symphony sequence in Disney's Fantasia. In fact, that was really influential to me. Um, from a design um, aspect, but in my heart of hearts, I know that I'm really not going to be able to see these, you know, hunky centaurs walking around (laughs) as much as maybe I'd like to be able to see those. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like like some of those are just so fantastical, you know, you're like, there's, you know, really no uh, analog that you could point to that that kind of grounds it for you. No, Um, not really. I, I, I do, though, so much enjoy watching those Pegasus is landing in the water. It's so pretty. It's like a, that's like a visual poem. You know? Right. Right. But there, there is a difference. I think <clears throat> I definitely agree with fairy tale creatures where you're not really worried about it on that level. You just mm-hmm. accept it. And it is, it's just, don't think right. about it. You're not. Right. To yeah. It doesn't need to be. Real, and your stuff, you know? you're, you're thinking about it on that such a scientific level mm-hmm. that it just makes it feel more real. Um, this just popped into my head. Uh, are you familiar with, um, it was an old, uh, it was produced by Rankin Bass in, I think, the early 80s, The Flight of Dragons. Ah. Uh, it was like the same drawings as um, as Last Unicorn, um, uh, John Ritter. Like the Lord of the Rings cartoons, right? I, uh, yeah, I'm familiar with the Lord of the Rings one. I don't think I was so fortunate. So, to yeah, Lord of the Rings was, was Ralph Bakshi, but, but Tim, you're, you're thinking of The Hobbit. Oh, The Hobbit one, yeah. And the Hobbit. He, yes. They also did Return of the King uh weirdly but um but in the flight of dragons 
whether you're familiar or not, familiar with it or not, it's not a big deal. But the neat thing that I always loved about that is they had these big, they were very bulbous looking dragons. Uh-huh. And uh, they sort of look like balloons with a uh, little legs sticking out uh-huh. with very small wings. Mm-hmm. Now you could, you could see those uh, on the level of, of any sort of a fairy tale story and be like, yeah, it's fine. They, they, they have wings, they fly. I'm not worried about it. Mm-hmm. But in that story, they went the next level on explaining why they can fly and why they can breathe fire. And uh-huh. it was about, um, they said that they were essentially balloons and they could oh. fill themselves up with a lighter than air gas and that the, the wings were actually so small because they had nothing to do with flying. They were only for steering. Right. Yeah. And uh, the fire came from, uh, there was uh, something in the roof of the mouth mm-hmm. that um, created electricity. Uh-huh. And um, like some sort of a bioelectric, you know, response. Obviously, there are analogs to that. The platypus yes. sees uh-huh. bioelectricity underwater and the electric eel. Yes. Um, and so uh, they had some reason why the breath would ignite that. I can't uh-huh. remember. But it wasn't that they're filled with fire and breathe. Because, uh-huh. you know, it's like, why can dragons breathe fire? Right. It's just yeah. so mm-hmm. weird. You know, why, why do we accept that? It's so bizarre, but but that I, I would I recommend finding that movie. Okay. I think it's wonderful. Uh, like uh, like yeah. I said, John Ritter was in it, and uh, James Earl Jones is the villain. Oh, um, he, he's uh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but great, great movie. But uh, I I think that was the first time that I ever saw fantasy deconstructed mm-hmm. and explained. Yeah, and uh, that's that is also what I get from your work that you, you very much. <laughs> and I have I have an example from um, your book, Science of Creature Design. Oh, okay. So you have here uh, a drawing on page 105 of a Pegasus. And ah. the, um, the wings are just gargantuanly huge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just gargantuan. And I love how much you, you thought about this. And uh-huh. I just want to read this little passage here. It says, this Pegasus borders on the chimeric. As a mammal, it would, it would make more biological sense for it to have bat-like rather than bird-like wings. The wingspan required for a 1,200-pound horse to, actively, to actually fly would be longer than an airplane glider's, and other adjustments such as scapular leg-to-wing interactions, an expanded breastbone, uh, enlarged pectoral muscles to the point of looking ridiculous, <laughs> Your words, not mine. And a longer, stiff Archaeopteryx-like tail would have to be considered. For the sake of the aesthetics, I've kept the pectorals conservative. <laughs> it's just awesome. Um, that level of creature design, you don't, you don't always see. You don't usually see um, at all, for sure. And uh, obviously, like Tim, you were saying, Monster Hunter just is one of those properties that it feels like they put more effort into it. Another one that is a recent one, sort of, is uh, Avatar, uh, oh, yes. which I Love know Avatar. Neville Page um, mm. did all the creature design on that. Um, yes. Were you a fan of the, not the, necessarily the movie put aside, but the creatures in that movie? Oh, yeah. Was. Yes. And I, and I know Neville. He is a wonderful designer and a wonderful person. Awesome. So that's that awesome. More awesome. <laughs> right. I got to know Very him on cool. uh, Face Off. Face Off, oh, he was always a judge yeah. on, on that show for a while. And uh, when I looked up who did Avatar, I wasn't sure, but I wanted to reference it today. It's like, oh my God, Neville Page. No way. Yeah. Oh, the gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful, 
beautiful designs, beautiful. Oh designs. my God. Like it really uh, a lot of thought was put into the, the creatures and making them yeah. feel like not just singular creatures, but an ecosystem. A food right. Map. They belong there. Yeah. These are things yeah. like, okay, what feeds on what else? Why does this need to have this adaptation to, you know, well, because it's this other thing is hunting mm-hmm. it. And so it has to get away. And it, how does it get away? Oh, it needs to go up the trees. Oh, well, it's too heavy to go up the trees. Oh, well, then it needs these big claws. And yeah. it's just that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of stuff in, in those creatures for Avatar where they had like a lot of display. Um, yes. Their faces would open and be like these striking, shocking displays for, to, for various reasons. Right. Um, all behavior taken from real, real world creatures, yeah. such as you do. Um, we, I, you know, I just love monsters. I love anything that's, you know, you call them, you don't, I, I feel like you don't use the word monster. You use imagined, imaginary animals. And, and creatures, animals. right? Yeah. And creatures, but. Because well, um, monsters tend to um, have, when we think of a monster, we think of something that shouldn't exist or that is. Like sinister or some way, like something. Negative connotation to it. Right. Yeah. yeah intimidating. Or, yeah, like the Frankenstein monster, you know, sure. something like that. Although with flying monsters, it's taken in a different context. So. Oh, that's right, right, right. We have yeah. monsters in your new title. That's true. Mm-hmm. Now, do you yeah. go back to like uh, like King Kong, like everybody, 1933? Oh, I, I remember seeing that movie when I was a real little girl. Yeah, but I, was, I, I have to tell you that I was rooting for the Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I was I was rooting for the two legged lizard that's climbing vertically up the side of the of the cliffside that's in it for one second. That was always my favorite, okay. and it was wonderful seeing uh, Kong Skull Island come out. And they used that design for the main villains, which were the skull crawlers. Yeah. They were based on the two legged lizard uh, that is just in that one scene where they're yeah. crossing this. Do you know Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> of course you do. It's amazing. Um, they're like oh, the the humans are trying to get across this this uh, toppled tree, uh, mm-hmm. and then Kong grabs the tree and he throws it down. But yeah. and then the humans are stuck, and and one of the guys has to contend with this little two legged lizard. I don't know. It's just like I've always been the sort to like key on key in on little things that are just barely mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. I think why I love. So if we if we can get into Star Wars a little bit, because uh, I think our listeners are excited to hear about Star Wars. Um, like the, like Star Wars is such a property more than other sci-fi more. Th- mm-hmm. I mean, Avatar did it, mm-hmm. um, but more than Star Trek or more than most sci-fi. You yes. Know, they, they populate the, like every corner, like there'll be a shot in Star Wars uh-huh. where, where they will pan over and there'll be a little monkey lizard sitting on a tree. Yes. Mm-hmm. For Absolutely. one second. Yeah. They, they fill these various shots with these small little, you know, quote cameos, I call them mm-hmm. of wildlife. And you're like, yeah. Ooh, look, something's living there. And it's just yeah. cool to see yeah. that. I right. think that right. was one of the things that like, like for me, you know, obviously people have their opinions about the prequel trilogy, but episode one was so special to me because of how many moments those things got to shine and yes. finding and finding all these different scenes you know with with unique creatures unique you know encounters with the wildlife and everything made that movie so special and is pretty much the primary reason i like to revisit that film yeah like, like it's one of the most uh rich 
Star Wars films for that. And, and I think that that is, is such a strength to it. And actually, I remember uh, when the, the new trilogy was coming out and, and they were releasing, you know, episode seven, you mm-hmm. kind of start the movie off and you have some establishing shots with some wildlife here and there. And I'm like, oh man, it feels like Star Wars again. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it to me had these little bits of wildlife yep. just kind of poking around. And I'm yeah. like, this is Star Wars. It's not just the Jedi and the lightsabers and all that stuff. No. It's also the little ecosystems and the quiet moments of just like this little, you know, rabbit creature, this other thing. And, and just those establishing shots are everything for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and, I think yeah. famously uh, a really, really good one is in Return of the Jedi, the little, the frog monster thing that's oh, outside of, of Jabba's palace. Yep. They mm-hmm. just cut to the frog for no good reason. Yeah. And it's wonderful. I, I love that shot. That's just a real quick little thing. So if we could, like, let's start. How did you get involved with working for the juggernaut of a property that is Star Wars? Were you a fan uh, going into it, or how did, how did that all happen? Again, I never dreamed I was going to be a visual development, you know, visual development artist, conceptual artist. I was always more going to the science route. And, but it, actually, it was the science that got me hired Ultimately, um, if we put all the dots together for, you know, Lucasfilm and, and onward, um, I, um, the art, I had most of my background, as I mentioned, is in the sciences. But back in the day when I was, you know, in my early 20s, college wasn't quite as expensive as it is now. And I actually had a little bit of money left over and I was able to attend a couple of maybe three or four semesters between two different art schools in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, one of them had a spring show that in order to get your, your BFA, you, you needed to, to attend and participate in. And so I did. And the artwork that I submitted was of all real animals, just, you know, real animals, not monsters, not dragons, not, you know, whatever. Yep. And a couple of art directors from Lucasfilm saw the work and hired me to do creature design based wow. solely on the real animals. Because they saw you could, yeah. if you, you know, could capture real life, you could make, you know, make up yeah. anything you want. Yeah. yeah. And they wanted authenticity. And so my first job working for Lucasfilm was in, for LucasArts. And that was their video game dis- division. And it was a Steel- Steven Spielberg um, project called The Dig. And so I designed all kinds of six-limbed hexapodal creatures. Wow! We did a whole, wow. did a whole, you know, ecology full of these creatures, and then in the interim, I I did design work for the World Wildlife Fund. I got really mm-hmm. good at drawing panda bears. <laughs> <laughs> I know the the ever popular mascot. <laughs> yeah, but that was a fun gig. I, I designed animals for all kinds of products, and that was a really good experience. And then um, I got a call out of the blue um, from ILM from Doug Chang. He needed somebody who could draw animals for a little feature called Jumanji. And that was my first feature. And so I worked on just about all the animals in that production, except for the lion. But um, when you, I had a lot to do with the evil monkeys. Oh, nice. (laughs) I, the zebras, those zebras are my zebras. And I worked on all the uh, aspects on all the other animals. I worked out the wings of the pelicans and, uh, and and so then um they just hired me so but you're not a 3d animator at all right so were you working with the animators and you're just helping them figure out 
the positions of the pelican's wings and what they would do and what they wouldn't do? I designed all the anatomies for on all those animals, bones, muscles, um, surface, uh, for the, um, ultimately, the animators, the first, the first in-between step, of course, these Last connection, I think. Can manipulate. Basically, a digital character is like a, it's like a marionette as opposed to 2D animation where you're basically an illustrator doing a sequence okay. of, of drawings. Um, and in digital animation, you, you um, design a character and then you have modelers and riggers. That a modeler is like a digital sculptor and they use programs like ZBrush, et cetera. And then mm -hmm. you um, infuse that um, model with rigging, which is like a skeleton. And then even on top of that, then you'll do further rigging, which is like the muscles, depending on how, what level of detail you want. Right, to how much detail the animation needs ultimately. Oh, yeah. right. Wow, so yeah, so I've never thought of 3D animation in that respect of like, you, you kind of need to have a stand-in, you know, a physical, thing there first yeah. before you can really design it absolutely or, or, wow. and so yeah so what my job is is to give them the information that they need so they can say okay here is how where these joints are here is how where the muscles insert where they originate and where they insert uh and that the more information you give the production team the less room for error and the better it's going to be. And then your producers really like you and hire you <laughs> some more. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's, you're off and running. Yeah, because um, the most expensive films are animated movies, whether they're 2D or 3D. Um, mm. And I've worked for both, for both 2D animation and 3D animation. In principle, it's, it's the same. My drawings are the same for, for, for both, even if the... In 2D animation, even if you have a great deal of, um, say, refinement, just for the nature of that, mm -hmm. but fundamentally, the 2D animators need to have as much anatomical knowledge as the 3D animators. So now, is that like uh, the capacity you were working on? I know you worked on Brother Bear, the yes. uh, Disney film. Absolutely. Um, yeah, with Brother Bear, which um, I think I worked on it for at least a year. That was one of the most fun experience I've worked on any production, I'll have to say. Oh, anecdotes, wow. please. Oh, well, one thing is that the team that I worked with, I'm friends to them, with them to this very day. That was the, one of the best things. We just worked together so well. Aaron Blaze was my supervisor. He is just, hey, Aaron, <laughs> he's just a, an exquisite wildlife and animal artist and he, he even has his own online um animation and animal anatomy school so check out aaron blazes <laughs> wow nice yeah. he also Solid wrote plug. you a, a wonderful uh forward for your book science of creature yes. design which, yeah um, um but with, with brother bear um it wasn't that it wasn't dissimilar to working on star wars the first thing I did, they had me do, was about at least 50 or so diagrams of grizzly bears in different positions, but with their um, showing how the, the, the underlying muscles worked. Mm -hmm. And then the fur, how the fur, how simplifying the fur into fur blocks. 
so they could animate the fur, you know, in a block because oh, you have to do that in duty. Um, and then I worked on the moose. Oh yeah. And then a whole all all other kinds of woodland animals. It was very similar to I mean it was a big ecosystem. And mm -hmm. so I would design all the way from a very realistic um, approach because Disney's all about starting from looking at nature mm -hmm. and then editing down to say the studio release character or very close to. So you, in other words, I would, I would, I would start out with very realistic bears and then through the months edit until you, you will see that bears eyes gets gradually bigger until you get to the studio release. Um, oh. Right. It's like continually cartoonifying, you know, yeah. the real bear until it's like that right medium balance yeah, between the two. Yeah, because brother bears are very, very naturalistically done. So it's a really beautiful balance between exaggeration and nature. They, I think, pretty much followed the um, Bambi precedent. P Bambi is very similar mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah, it does. It does feel a little bit more uh, realistic than some of the animals in Disney features at the time. Uh, I'm not including Lion King, but uh, for instance, like the animals that were in Pocahontas, like the the yeah. raccoon, uh, they were they were wonderful, uh, mm -hmm. but they didn't look quite as real. Um, right. Yeah. They were a little bit more exaggerated and cartoonified and strangely shaped. Like you know, um, I'm just really thinking about that raccoon. I can't remember his name, but um, it's Pico, right? I don't remember. I remember the raccoon. But in Brother Bear, everything was very, even the moose who had cartoon eyes, their yes. bodies were like very, very yes. perfect. Yeah, yeah. I worked really hard on those, on those moose. They, and they were fun to do. They were, yeah, they I mean, well, Bob and Doug McKenzie, I mean, as moose. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Just awesome. Uh, so back to Star Wars. I know that you worked on the special editions before you got into. Yes. Phantom Menace. So I know uh, because IMDb told me you were on a little feature called The Anatomy of a Dewback. I which was. Is, which is actually on IMDb, if it, uh, I mean on YouTube, if anybody wants to look up Anatomy of a Dewback, you do appear at one point. Uh -huh. And um, I, I love the Dewbacks. I mean, they, they, they've always been one of my top favorite creatures. And that is actually one of my favorite things that was done with the special edition because I, I'm, I'm up and down on what I think they did, you know, for, for, for new scenes, whether or not they were worthwhile or better yeah. or not. But man, I loved seeing the stormtroopers actually ride the dewback instead yeah. of having it be like a million miles away up on the yeah. hill. Yeah. Um, well, that was really very exciting. Um, when I was at, you know, uh, industrial, you know, at, at ILM working away and basically whenever there was, an effect that, or a movie that had animals in it, you know, they just hand it to me, whether it was like imaginary animal or, or the, the Clydesdales in the Budweiser, you know, commercials, oh, Super Bowl wow. commercials. And so mm -hmm. I did whatever, you know, animals, they said, here, Terrell, here's an animal. We need you to do this animal for us. And uh, so I was working away. I think I was working on a honeycomb commercial, the honeycomb, you know. <laughs> oh, the honeycomb, like nestle, crazy nestle, thing. Nestle Quick Bunny. Okay. Nestle Quick Bunny. Okay. Anyway, so I'm just working along storyboarding out this commercial. And then um, one of my art directors, Mark Morris at the time, he came to me and said, um, we would like you to, um, 
here's some here's some references and it's like this little tiny headshot of a do back it's like a posted stamp because that's like all they have yeah and say can you we're going to give this to you we would like to see you flesh this out like pretend that you're bringing it to life like like a dinosaur in in a museum but it's alive and and just you know like, oh gosh this is from star wars you know mm-hmm. yeah 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 of course yeah but we just want you <laughs> Just, just we want to see what you can do with this. No other details, okay? <laughs> and so, I did. I had this little silhouette of the face, and there was one other shot of the head that they had of it, which no longer existed because with foam latex, those things pass yes. away really quickly. Yes. Right. So that's all I had, and so they said, "What we need is a side view. We need the top view." And so I, I designed it as best I could to how I thought it would make sense for a person to be able to ride this iguana-ish, mm-hmm. but iguana-dinosaur hybrid, because an iguana has legs that splay out, and these animals plainly had legs that were more underneath them. Right, more like a hippo or a rhino or something. Yeah. And so I did that, and I did the top view, and they said, oh, okay. And, and rendered it in full color, and it was in markers because we there really wasn't digital was just in its infancy at that point. Hmm. And most of the, the rendering that we would do as far as full color work was either markers or acrylics, acrylic paint. And so, okay, so I, I did that. It took me, I think I worked on it. It's about five, four or five days. I worked on it. Oh, okay. And, and then gave it back to Mark, and he says, "Thank you." And then I went back to the honey to the, the yeah, honeycomb the nest quick <laughs> yeah and uh, just uh, literally this like you know footnote in your in your week of like oh by the yeah, way yeah I'm going you to take this <laughs> this little smudge in the distance of this one shot of Star Wars and just make it real please thanks <laughs> yes. yeah it was kind of going from extreme from your know, very Bugs Bunny type animal to do sure. that right did they did they give you because um, there was an old toy. Um, of the dewback, which is I, I, as a kid, was the best I could get a look at it because yeah, it really I, is just barely. It's a postage stamp up on the hill, and then there was like in the original uh, footage, there was as they were walking into the cantina, uh-huh. there uh, was a shot, and they had a puppet where they could make its head kind of move back and forth. Yeah, that was uh, the and, puppet that no longer existed because it just right, <laughs> right. So as a kid, like the toy was the best look I ever got at the dewback. Yeah. Um, did well, they? Did they? No. They did not give me the toy. No. They, I had no. I was toyless. I was well, I, I actually have the toy up on a shelf right now um, of your dewback. Uh, oh. That was that was actually the mid '90s from from the redesign, and that oh. that is. Uh, I love that toy. That was actually originally my younger brother's toy. Oh, I stole. you so, did. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. He, he stole my dewback. He. <laughs> 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 it happened. You know, these things happen. You know, you don't it's, know what brothers it's are doing. Just, it's just life. We're very unpredictable. <laughs> um, so from there, you went back to I Nesquik, back. but eventually yeah. Phantom Menace happened. It did. Well, you know, I, so anyway, so like I, that's where I was working back on um, storyboards and then other things. And, and then there is like these rumors circling around. We think that, you know, George might be, he's thinking maybe about, going back to the Star Wars franchise. 
And of course, our ears, the ILM all kind of perk up. But, yeah. you know, rumors, you know, rumors, they kind of fly around and they go, go to sleep and go away and all that. But about a week and a half after I had handed off the do-back drawing designs to my art director, um, Dennis Murin came by my, my desk. And I didn't even recognize him at first because, you know, I was still a relative newbie at ILM. And he said, the ranch really likes this. He really, mm. ranch really likes this do back. And at first he went right over my head with the ranch. Oh, and then I realized that's like the White House. But You're like the dressing? Right. right. The dressing yeah. likes this? I don't know. Ranch see. dressing. He likes this by drawing. Yay. <laughs> I, think, I think I can be happy for the rest of my life now. <laughs> right. Like a mission accomplished, jobs done. Yeah. All is go. good in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, and, and then, and, and then I go back, you know, and work on Dragonheart and I work on Men in Black. And and then about that time when I was working on um, Men in Black, the rumors really became non-rumors anymore. And it was official that George was going to revisit Star Wars and do a new trilogy, prequels. And um, so he... Um, we were able to, we all would have, to, anybody who was interested had to submit their portfolios because he wasn't just going to just automatically, okay, I'll just, you know, hire my, my crew at ILM. He was actually looking, expanding the search um, nationwide or actually globally wide. So any, everybody from wow. all over the world could submit a portfolio. And so I thought, well, I'll put in my, my portfolio, see what happens. You know, there's a lot of talented artists out there and Doug Chang submitted his portfolio and other people did. And I, we just tried really hard not to think about it. Sure. But um, I remember going home one evening, and then I got a phone call, and it was Doug. And he said, guess what? George chose you and I to start this Star Wars art. <laughs> <laughs> and you practically crashed your car. Yeah. It, well, oh, I, I couldn't man. crash my car because we didn't have really cell phones Oh, that, fair. <laughs> I was, he actually called me at home. I had just gotten home, and he called me at home. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's the call of a lifetime right there. That is the call of a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. And, and from there, um, the art department was always very small. So it started out with him and I, and then we, and, and Ian McCaig and Benton Jew and um, David Navidad came on board, and David DeZoritz. And um, Robert Barnes, and that was about the size mm. that the art department was for. Well, Jay Schuster, Jay Schuster too. Um, yeah, a so lot smaller a, than I would have thought, for sure. Yeah, it was very small. <clears throat> I always ma imagine these armies working for Lucas and every department. No. The armies are in production, like the gotcha. animation and, right. and production and post production. But for anyone or an art department working on a major feature whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek or um, Disney production, the art departments are pretty small. Hmm. And so that's one thing that students who want to be conceptual illustrators need to keep in mind is that if you want to you know, work on in the, in the art department of a, of a feature or for games or whatever, make sure that you're really ahead of that you are, that you at the very best point in your game, no matter what, where you are in life. Um, you, you, of course, you're never going to be as good as you want to be. 
but try to be as best you can be at any one point in time because those are de- those art departments are 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 small. Mm. There's a lot of competition. And right, a lot of exactly. Who you know and who knows you. So get those uh, beef up those art stations, kids. There you go. Yeah, and what doesn't change regardless of what media you like to use, whether it's traditional or digital or a blend of both. I usually do a blend of both. Um, Perspective, color theory, anatomy, composition, those things are constants. They never change. Hmm. Those never change. You gotta be, gotta be good at art because it doesn't matter what media you're using. You need to understand that. Right. Universal truths of art. You know, they never go away. I hate to I hate to break up the uh, Star Wars talk because I do want to keep going for a little bit more. I know we're I'm I'm watching the clock here and making because sometimes we have these like very long episodes, so <laughs> I certainly don't want to torture you uh, too long in the brig. Even though you know the crumpets, I don't know if you've tried the crumpets. Um, so medium, I do want to talk about that just in basic terms. Your your preferred medium, everything you do has this very tactile, handmade quality, mm-hmm. which I just beyond adore the all of the little the little graphite you know strokes and uh what do you what do you do you have a very specific style uh with all of these books they're they're colored but they're uh you see the pencil lines too so what do you do to create this uh this polished look like if you're if i open up to any page in cataran odyssey what am i seeing well in the case of Katura, well, actually, it's, it's the Katuran Odyssey, but as oh, long Katuran. as people, I've been saying it wrong all these oh, years. But that's okay, because as long as they know what it is, I, I don't mind how you pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> it's pronounced Bob. <laughs> well, those, those illustrations are an interesting blend of digital and traditional media. And so they all started as drawings on tracing paper, of all things, using... Um, about an HB lead. I think I was using a mechanical pencil because that gets a nice sharp um, mm. point. Oh, I love a good mechanical pencil. Oh, I love yeah. that you use mechanical pencils. Yeah. And they're just nothing fancy, just the Pentel pencil you can buy, you know, at Walgreens. <laughs> and, and so I was drawing on tracing paper. Tracing paper is a really nice surface to draw on. And uh, then what I did after that, I would take a really nice, um, photocopy of that and play around with the line density of, so I could get a kind of a nice really dark line mm. and then from there um, scanned it into Photoshop painted and painted them in Photoshop um, that's basically oh, wow. what wow. I did and uh, Contura was such a large undertaking working on it was like a movie in that um, I painted all the animals and then one of my associates, a wonderful artist, her name is Stephanie Lostamolo, she painted the backgrounds and added some effects because otherwise the book would have taken like about 10 years to do. <laughs> yeah, that's what it looks like. I mean, this is right. not a small book. There's so much in there. there. Aren't, the pages are not numbered, so I'm not sure how many pages it actually is. I don't know if you know that off, uh, uh, off the top of your head. <laughs> a lot, right? A lot. Like, this has got to be a couple hundred pages or something, and, and this is yeah. a... A, a coffee table book. This well, is a, a very oversized book that you've created. So every single page is this massive panorama of, you know, in in most cases, just a million different creatures. Uh, and and the, 
also, we're skipping over one of the things we really wanted to talk about in Phantom Menace, but oh my God, like the, the buildings and, you know, the way you're able to render all these perfect scenes of cityscapes and uh, uh, ruins. Um, there's a lot of scenes later on, they get to this place with ruins and stuff. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, awesome. Okay. What, Tim, why don't you ask your, your, uh, your question about Phantom Menace with the underwater stuff, and then we'll move on to, to Katurin. Sure, yeah, because I definitely want to get to Katurin more. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, one of the standout scenes in Phantom Menace for, I, I would say, everybody, but especially me and especially Steve is the underwater chase scene on Naboo, you know, and you have this just tour de force of, yep. of creature design of like, you have the OPC killer, the Colo Clawfish, the Sando Aqua monster. Like, it's the, it's the whole my beer. Of, right of creature design it <laughs> is because every like, time you think oh this is the biggest predator this hold is my the apex beer. you're like hold my beer <laughs> yeah. here comes the yeah. next here comes the next thing so i mean you know talk, talk to us a little bit about you know the the design you know kind of headspace of that scene you know how that all kind of came together and and were you just able to have a field day with that scene because i feel like that's like a dream come true absolutely yes um one wonderful thing about um all about the prequels is that George gave us a ton of blue sky, ton of blue sky. He just, and I, and I think he enjoyed watching us have a lot of fun with all this freedom that we had. And he could kind of like pick and choose and make mashups. And he, I think he was just delighted. Actually. Right. Yeah. It was just basically like, I'm going to put these incredibly talented people in a room and give them the space to work and just yeah. see what happens. Yeah. And I will say as an aside, he was one of the nicest directors I've ever worked for George Lucas. He's a wow. That's really awesome. super person. Yeah. He really didn't, nice. You don't have any um, any funny anecdotes about him like being very particular about his coffee or anything anything oh, you want I to do. say like that? Like <laughs> I, I do have a funny um, Easter story. Oh, please share that. Yes. Well, it was it was the Friday before the Easter holiday, and we had all these little um, um, Cherie bunnies. Oh, the Peeps bunnies. Mm -hmm. Oh, yep. And we were just, you know, all snacking on these little pink sugary bunnies and getting sugar highs. And that was okay because we were looking, it was Friday. And Fridays are when George, we would usually meet with George um, for him to go over what we had done during the course of the week. And so he comes up and we had put this plate just special for him with, you know, a special little Easter bunny for him. And he went, came in and you had to be there to see how funny it actually was. Um, but he came in and he goes, oh, it's a bunny. It's such a sweet little bunny. I love this little bunny. It's just adorable. And he goes, but not in this movie. He takes his thumb and goes. <laughs> it was just so fun. I mean, like you said, you had, you had to have been there to appreciate yeah. And one thing, you know, he would tell these jokes. But these were jokes you could share with your children, but they were funny jokes. You know, it takes a lot of skill to be able to tell jokes and, and not devolve into, you know, um, adult humor. Right. The blue territory. Yeah. His, his jokes are always child safe, <laughs> which was delightful. But, he seems uh, like anyway, a wholesome guy. Yes, I would, I would totally agree with that. <laughs> That's but anyway, um, well, uh, retroids—that's what we call our listeners. Retroids—you heard heard it first. 
if you ever get a job working for George Lucas, you don't want to design him bunnies. <laughs> yep, he's gonna put a thumb. He's gonna right put his thumb it. right in their face. <laughs> <laughs> no Peter Rabbit movies coming out of Lucas. Probably not. No. <laughs> um, but you you wanted to know about the um, the underwater creatures. Yes. Yes, please. So there was a lot of blue sky. And the OBC killer, um, that initial concept and actually was um, Doug's concept, Doug Chang's. And he came up with um, say, the, the idea, but then he handed that up off to me and said, okay, Terrell, you work out the anatomy, you make this look real. Mm-hmm. And so, so he said like lobster fish. Yes. Go. Um, yeah, yeah, lobster fish. And obviously that is chimeric, but I, my, my job was to – make it as less chimeric because I could so it looks like it's all kind of integrated. Yeah, right. Right. Not just one half this, one half another. Right. Definitely not. It all had to kind of work together. And bringing us back to the Dunkley Osteus, it does have mm-hmm. that outer carapace sort of a look, but it's very fish-shaped in the front. Like the head yeah. is very fish. Yeah, kind of ang- angler, fish-esque and, you know, that way. Yes. Yeah, it was like if you took all the angler fish species that exist on Earth and you just kind of said, let's make uber angler right. fish. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was what I did. And then the colo clawfish, um, I was thinking about animals like eels. I was thinking, again, a little bit of some of these um, side fins of squid, but I didn't want to mash up too much invertebrate mm. and vertebrate together because that can kind of be make a creature a little bit less real. And um, so I was thinking gaviles. You know, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Things like that. And of course, yep. a little bit of crustacean with a little pincers by its. Yep. Yeah, yep, yep. A little, little T-Rex arms, little. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, the, so the head, which I have always felt was, I couldn't place the head. Uh-huh. That's, a, that's a gavile. That's like a crocodilian. Yeah. yeah. Uh, an, a, an Asiatic crocodilian. Uh, right. Has super long, wow. super long jaws, super long yeah, snout. Yeah, I, I never got that. See, I always say, see what I said earlier, I always try to, you know, pick apart. Uh-huh. I couldn't, I didn't get that, but that one's my favorite. And there's that in the, I think it was the original trailer uh-huh. for, for the Phantom Menace. I believe there's a moment where it lights up and yes. looks at the sub. And yeah. that was one of my takeaways. Obviously there's the Darth Maul double lightsaber that everybody pooped their pants. Oh yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> after, after that, for me, it was, it was that shot and I was, I was dying to see that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All those animals were capable of bioluminescence. Which yes. Made, oh, just what, yeah. the way it right. lit up, like, you know, they, they lit up in rows along the tail going, getting closer to the head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like that, yeah. that, that scene is so perfect. It's yeah. Awesome. And then you had, of course, your Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. I, it's my. I think one of my, the fav, one of my favorite creatures of all time is the Sondo Aqua Monster, and so um, that one was. I wanted to. I knew it was a, since it lived, you know, deep under the water, so it obviously had to have gill capacity. But mm-hmm. the I need, it needed to be different in a very real sense from the other two, which were more more or less fish-like with a little tad of right. in there. Right, yeah. Sando has, like, musculature, like, very yeah. defined, you know, anatomy and muscles and everything that makes him feel like he could walk around on land even, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, he, actually, he's a hunk, that guy. Yeah, uh, actually, yes, that's actually true. It, you know, the natural history of this animal is that it does sometimes come up to the surface to do a little bit of hunting and snatch things. Uh, so this animal... Has actually it has both gills and it has lungs. I mean, we, all these animals had natural histories that we worked out. 
And that's uh, awesome. So, but this animal, the animal that inspired the Sando is actually a tiger. And oh wow! Yeah, it's actually a tiger. Um, this animal lives at the top of its food of the food chain. It's smart. It's sneaky. It's a little lazy because it doesn't have to worry about being fed upon itself. And you know, just so huge. So what I was thinking of I was thinking of the nature of a tiger, how a tiger moves, kind of the musculature of a tiger. I also think, thought about otter, for example, mm. otters and a little bit mm-hmm. of you know walrus. Um, and yeah, you know, yeah, bit, yeah. I can see an otter in yeah. there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a little bit of whale in the in the uh, baleen whale in the mm-hmm. sides of its mouth. Yep. Yeah, and actually, if just for a little bit of insider information, this this particular sando is actually a female. Oh, really? Oh. It's a female. Yeah. So what what's the uh, sexual dimorphism of the sando aqua monster? It would be similar to any other, you know, like cetacean, you know, like a dolphin or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, you really couldn't, you really can't tell them too far apart, but they know, you know. So. <laughs> right. Right. And and you, you got you, like I like the way that the Sando has the gills depicted, like you said, around the head, and it almost makes me yeah. think of like an axolotl or something like that, where it's just yes. kind of like these little frills sticking out there, the hybrid. Yeah. So um, the only difference from my original design and how she eventually ended up is that Doug made a good call. I originally had the eyes larger because you know, underwater fish, etc., have generally large eyes to be able mm. to kind of see. Take a bit. in more light. Yep. But he made a very good call and um, had the eyes become smaller because if you think about huge animals, huge ocean-going animals, like blue whales. I mean, I mean, a blue whale's eye is huge, right? But compared to right. the rest of its body, it's right. small. Mm-hmm. And so by making the eyes of the Sando smaller, it actually enhanced it being seeming even bigger. Mm. And so I'm very grateful to Doug for pointing that out and um making those changes and that that was something that i've a lesson that i kind of have brought with me when i'm designing you know huge ginormous creatures um i think with sando she's sort of like the hero creature and it's kind of in this sort of more mammalian even though it has skills more Mm -hmm. mammalian way and i think as human beings we often will gravitate towards however far removed an animal that's a little bit more like ourselves absolutely right yeah you have the hero mammal coming yeah. in and yeah, yeah relatable yeah not yeah the colo clawfish not too snugly um not too snugly but still fun still fun uh no I, this the colo is my favorite so the names did you have any input in the names on these just wondering um actually george named all of those oh, okay yeah because okay. um, so. uh, i always thought it was funny that the first one looks most like a fish uh-huh but the eel one is the one that has fish in the name. I just thought that was strange. <laughs> right. It's just George. Right. Yeah. Just the, the sound of the words and music of it, how it you yeah. know, kind of flows. Yeah. He, he's, and I will say he's very talented at, at creating names. Mm-hmm. The names, he's like Dickens, actually. He's able to create names that match the character. You know, Dickens famously, Ebenezer Scrooge. That sure. just mm-hmm. says so Such a good name. Yeah. You know, yep. Darth Vader is like, ah, kind of a scary, like, sound um, without being obvious about it. Right. And, uh, Unless yeah. you spoke ju- Dutch. I mean, well, or German, right? I, I suppose so. That's true. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so just really quick, because we're, we're kind of getting long in the tooth here. I did want to mention once more the wildlife of star Wars, which, uh, is a book that I, I personally love. And this is something that came, uh, after Phantom Menace, but it seems like a lot of what you're talking about for the background of these creatures and the natural history and the way that they acted and reacted in the world and, uh, all that's in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sadly out of print right now. Um, and it is actually pretty expensive uh, to track down a copy. I've had this forever. Um, this is actually a gift from 8-Bit Alchemy, all, you, all y'all all uh, who yeah, aren't I sure, give great, I give aren't great sure if I have a, a super cool little bro, but I do. But um, <laughs> there's a lot of really amazing stuff in this book, and I don't want to take up too much more time on Star Wars. But uh, if I could just ask you one question that I've always wondered mm-hmm. with this book. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so we talked about we talked about the fish. Okay, cool. I also want brief mention the uh, the knobby white spider that I think uh-huh. is now they're just calling the ice spider, which was just in the Mandalorian, right? Which was originally a Ralph McQuarrie illustration. Yeah. That uh, could you do you have a do you mind just talking real quick like what it was like because there's a lot of stuff in here. There's also uh-huh. like the swamp slug. That yeah. I know was a Macquarie. Like, what was yes. it like? How did that happen? And they're like, here's a bunch of stuff we didn't use from mm-hmm. the great Ralph frickin' Macquarie. Right. How, how was that? Well, that was exactly as you say. There was so much invented for all the Star Wars films. The original trilogy, the prequels. Things that people, I mean, if, if everything, all the designs were included in the films, each film would be about 10 hours long. And of course, even George didn't have the budget to do <laughs> as much as I'm sure he would have loved to have done. Right. And so, but we didn't want these things not to be seen and not to be played with. And also, of course, practically speaking, it gives a whole bunch of material for any other pro- Star Wars productions, whether it's publishing, whether it's future yeah. films, whether it's in games, whether it's whatever, for people, you know, com- Dark Horse comics, for whatever right. people want to use, Clone Wars. I mean, yes. a lot of these designs from Wildlife of Star Wars that didn't make it in the film got into the Clone Wars, which I'm thinking, that's way cool. Right. Yeah, that was one of the best things about watching that show is getting to see so many of those designs because they just yeah. had so much bigger of a canvas to, you know, show those things, right. like you said. Right. Yeah. Now, there, uh, there, uh, Tim is actually going through Clone Wars again. I haven't seen it in a few years. Tim, do you remember? I think it was a season one episode uh, where they were on an ice planet and it was those, um, those weird like Yeti things with the spider faces. You know what I'm uh, talking about? They have yes, with the little trumpet like mouth, the little yeah, burp little proboscis mouth. Yeah. And they were riding on these big blue tusked cats. Ah, oh, the tusk cats. Oh, they're just tusk oh. cats. Okay, because they're in this. Yeah. I, I know that I know that, that was one example of a, a creature mm-hmm. that made it into Clone Wars. I just I just can't find the page that quick. <laughs> and there was also uh, you know, one of the one of the most fun, I think, creatures from uh, Clone Wars was the Zillow Beast, which was just like, you know, this massive Godzillion-esque thing that, you know, rose from the depths of the planet. And I mean, that I think was probably original from yeah, the that's Clone not, Wars. That's not in this, but that was a fun creature. Yeah. I, I also have to say that um, as, many, as many original trilogy fans were, I was always interested in what the crate Dragon looked like. Uh-huh. Because of the skeleton that's in that one scene in, in A New Hope, and uh, the the crate dragon did make an appearance finally, officially in the Mandalorian, making it the first canon appearance. But I have to say, I don't know if you saw th- that episode or if you watched the show, Terrell. 
I saw clips of it. Yeah. I really, I really enjoy your version better. I oh, just, well, thank you. I, I went back to, to Yeah. Your great oh, dragon is my favorite. That oh, one is. I, I, I use the skeleton, as you mentioned, the one that was in the, in, in, in New Hope for the mm-hmm. foundation of that one. So. Yeah, I love all the legs. Like, what a neat idea. Like, it's very dragon-like. You're like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to deviate too much. This is a dragon. Dragon's yeah. in the name, but let's make it a little weird. It can't just be what you're expecting. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very fun. All right, so um, 8-Bit, if you're good, moving on from Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Katurin Odyssey was just re-released this July. The, the version I actually have is from 2004, right. I believe. Yeah. Um, so I think it was the original press of it. Yeah, it was the, the original was from Simon Schuster, and yes. then Design Studio Press um, has re-released it in a paperback form. This is an absolutely beyond amazing, like holy grail type book for people who are interested in creature design, animals, anything like that. Almost every single creature. I, I don't think you invented a single creature for this book. No, the only one I did. The only imaginary one I did, or the ice macaws. The that's the only one. Okay, so but it's basically a macaw that can live in. That's that's a more pale blue that can live in the mountains. Gotcha. Okay. So the ice macaw, and there are probably ten thousand other actual real creatures. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm probably not exaggerating by that much. It's amazing how much you were able to fit into these pages. <laughs> and uh, it really is like a where's Waldo sort of a thing. If you're into yeah. that kind of thing, if you're into weird animals, um, mm-hmm. like I absolutely am. And I know mm-hmm. that I'm not the only one of our listeners who is um, very, very cool. You mixed dinosaurs, you mixed some mm-hmm. uh, uh, even just uh, ice age mammals sort of a thing. Yeah, you got the glyptodon in there. Yeah, right? the glyptodons like- on, the, on the cover. Also um, the, the second to main character is a uh, Quiga the Quagga. Yes. I love, uh, I, I had a weird thing about quaggas when I was a kid. I know it sounds like I'm lying, but I was just no. a weird, I just literally was fascinated by the quagga and I would go into like the school library and I was always looking for books on uh, extinct animals and yeah. endangered animals. And so basically everything from all of those books that I digested as a kid is in this. Uh-huh. Um, and it's this wonderful like Lord of the Rings style story. So I really want you to get to talk about, cause you, you did create this world. Yes. Um, I know, I know that there's a, another gentleman on the, on the cover who, uh, David Michael Weiger. Yes. Uh huh. David, David Weiger. He's a um, Hollywood screenwriter. Okay. And so putting, this was a very experimental book. It's, it's a, it's not say a graphic novel. It's a cinematic novel. Mm. And if you okay. notice the, the full page spreads, that's all in a, in a, def, a definite, legitimate film aspect ratio, that same that you would see on the big screen or, of course, wow. now television, to give you that experience. And then the artwork in between is all very similar to conceptual artwork that's done for any kind of, any kind of production. And that's what kind of moves it along. And, and rather than, say, word bubbles, we just had text, overlying text, yeah. so that you'd have a narrative, so that it wouldn't interfere with the visuals and so we wanted to do something that felt a little bit more like a movie or or as close to a movie that a book could could be and it was my i came up with the idea and the the basic story and then i worked with a team um, my associate robert gould who was the designer um 
of the book. He also pitched the book to various um, publishers. And then um, David, um, he was he took my ori my original kind of prose and put it into a really really nice narrative. You know, he added some things also that were very special of, of his own. And and then Stephanie Lostomolo, she did she painted the um, I drew everything out, but I as by one person, um, we just couldn't color everything on my own. So I knew yeah. what colors the animals were going to be. So I painted the animals, and then she went and painted the backgrounds, and then added some visual effects. And of course, that was Photoshop back originally in the '90s, which is different from what Photoshop is now. Very different program, yeah. yeah Photoshop yeah. six, you were on probably, or Photoshop seven, maybe. It was, yeah, it was um, towards the. The, the, the beginning of it of, of that particular thing and so it was it was very much like putting together a movie except this was this was a book but we wanted to be able to build a world that made sense that was grounded and we and the idea was let's 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 expose people to all the wonderful animals that live on this world and or, or have ever lived on planet earth mm. and so um i didn't i didn't i included as far as prehistoric reptiles i went more into the um aquatic or or um sea sea um reptiles rather than land reptiles because at that time james gurney had dinotopia and such and i didn't want mm. i didn't want to compete with 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 that at all so i concentrated on the mammals and used a lot of prehistoric mammals as well in there so i mean there's mammoths there's woolly rhinoceroses there's saber-toothed cats there's thylus myluses and i also did a lot of unusual mammals that maybe people you know like you were saying about the the, the aardvarks and such mm -hmm. um i i have like giant anteaters in there i have civets i have viturons i have archaeopteryxes a lot of unusual mammals and of course lemurs are rather unusual too so there's quite a few lemurs in there and then quigga my, my most i love horses it's my favorite animal of all time anything equine and i was heartbroken you know that this beautiful animal had been hunted to extinction and i wanted to bring it back yeah and so quigga is there I will say as an aside, there's a really happy um, thing I can say about quaggas in general is that they have actually been brought back. Their genetic material, they're actually a subspecies of um, plains zebra and all that, gen that genetics was in those particular zebras. And so they've been able to be bred back wow. having the same DNA. So it's called the, you can look it up, it's called the um, Quagga Project, it's in South Africa. And so, oh, wow, that's incredible. It's the only extinct animal that has ever been brought back. And it's, they're <clears> beautiful. So, I, but anyway, so Quigga is there to kind of, in a way, showcase look at this beautiful, look at the beauty of nature and um, please appreciate wildlife because it's, they're precious, it's rare and irreplaceable. Right. So that's yeah, kind I mean, of the, the sub message behind the artwork. I mean, that's not what the book's about about you know saving wildlife but it does draw attention to to wildlife yeah the katerin odyssey definitely it takes you know all this you know 
real world animals and everything and makes you look at it and go, wow, this is so fantastical. This feels so such like a magical world. And then you realize this is our world. This yeah. is the world we live in. These are the creatures that live here. And so many people, you know, like our, like, you know, Steve and my teachers not knowing yeah. about aardvarks and narwhals and things. It's like, this is the kind of exposure that maybe people need, you know, need is just yeah. to say, th- these are all real creatures. These are all animals that inhabit our planet. You don't need to look, you know, to a galaxy far, far away. You just need to look to another continent or into the, mm-hmm. you know, the forest around you. And like, the, you'll, you'll see so much diversity. Yeah. Except for the ice parrots. You're not gonna ice parrots are unique, right? They are very close related to the hyacinth macaws, so you won't be disappointed. Right, right. Very <laughs> close there. But yeah, it's just, uh, it's an incredible depiction of our planet. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to see this as an animated movie. I mean, you've done well, like 90% of the work. It's just unbelievable. They just need to make it. We're pitching it around, which is great. And also, I'm hoping to get it involved in, in certain... Um, STEAM programs in schools, um, you know, the arts and sciences married together. And so we're working on that right now, especially with its republication. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's exciting. We'll see what happens, but uh, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that, would be, that would be really nice. I mean, yeah. to, to appreciate animals in a, say a, a um, fantasy or a science fiction um, setting, but yet realizing as you so well said, these are these aliens so to speak live with us right yeah yeah especially especially the the um aquatic creatures like you said you know it's like the depths of the oceans are just so profoundly deep and in like i mean i think uh you know seeing bbc's blue planet for the first time was just mind-blowing you know i mean the the episode the abyss you know just seeing everything that was in the depths of our oceans was mind boggling. And it's just incredible. The kinds of things that are still on our planet that, you know, have been discovered and yet to be discovered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's easy to look to the stars to try and find new things, but really it's like, you actually have to look down. (laughs) You You just got to go, go the opposite direction. And they're right underneath our nose. (laughs) Now, now I'm just wondering if the male Sando aqua monster does the thing that that angler fish does and just like attaches to the female. Maybe the, maybe the, the male is just a, a tiny little, really tiny little nothing, <laughs> little nothing just attached to her neck or something. Yeah, well, you know, that's some, that, that might be something, something to consider. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, I think I see, do, do I spy Andrew Sarkis in this book? I think I, I was, I was pretty sure. Like it's a, it's a, it's like a wolf like thing that, they think was related to sheep. Am I wrong? Oh yes, Andrew Sarkis. Yes, that, Andrew Sarkis. That's, there. that's in the, the that um in those ruins. Ruins. Yeah. Boom. Yes, ruins. Yeah, I get to go tell my daughter that I am so smart. You are very smart, and that <laughs> she's, she's going to be like, Dad, whatever. Called it. She's like, whatever, Dad. It is an Andrew Sarkis, and yes, Quigga and Katuk are very afraid for good reason. Yes. Um, well, I, I am just absolutely thrilled that this book is getting, you know, a new lease on life. I certainly wish you the absolute best. It deserves to definitely be known, if nothing else, even in its current form, because my God, the amount of work that was clearly put into this by not only you, but other, many other people, but mostly you. Let's, like, 
my God, this is like a lifetime's worth of work. That cl- so, so obviously it wasn't a lifetime. You said it could have taken 10 years. How long did this take you to do the art for this? I would say from start to finish when we were first, when I, I did um, some conceptual work for it. You can actually see that in, I believe, um, Principles of Creature Design. I published some, um, some conceptual artwork for that book. But from that point, I had just gone off working I'd actually done those concepts on my, just as Star Wars was winding down, the feminist was winding down, and then worked on Brother Bear, and then, let's see, okay. So basically from start to finish, when um, in doing the artwork and working with um, the, the team of people I mentioned, it was a, a good two and a half to three years mm. doing that. Wow. And, and fortunately, we got advances from the publisher which enabled us to, to do oh, it. Oh, nice. To do it full time. This yep. was not a side project. This is what you did for three project. years. It was three years solid work. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Wow. That is absolutely, absolutely amazing. Uh, this was something I just so happened to come across. And uh, to be honest, I, I, had, I did have the wildlife of Star Wars already. But when I saw this, I just fell in love with the book on oh, face value. You. And well, then it, was, it realized, wasn't even a relation. Oh, Carol Whitlatch. Right. I know that name. Uh, you're the lady from the wildlife of star Wars. Book. <laughs> uh, very, very, very cool. Um, so please, I would, I would love to learn about flying monsters. This is, this okay. is your new book coming out. Uh-huh. Um, so why don't we end on that and uh, right. tell us what we have in store? Because unfortunately a lot, you know, you're, you have an Amazon page an author page, uh, a lot of your stuff is unfortunately out of print and kind of on the ex- expensive side. Katur um, and Odyssey, you guys can go out right now and buy. Um, actually, there are people selling the hardcover version um, as well with that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, Flying Monsters, what do we got in store? Yeah. And um, Principles and um, Science of Creature Design, those, those, are, those are active. I mean, they're they're, okay. They're not, okay. They're not out of print by any stretch of the imagination. So, gotcha. Yeah. I'm mistaken. Yeah. Principles of creature and science of creature are 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 readily available. And yeah, the um yeah the wildlife of Star Wars I think is hard to come by though. And that animals, one has, animals real and imagined seems to be as well. It shouldn't be. Um, it's it's in print. Oh really? It's it's uh, two hundred and forty bucks on Amazon. Well, that's oh weird no, I'm looking at it. And it's twenty five on, uh, on oh, the paperback. hardcover. Okay, so that's what yeah. came up. The hardcover. Yeah, because the soft covers are the new prints, right? Yeah, there's, gotcha. there's lots of soft covers available. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so um, flying monsters. Flying monsters um, is going to, is to be, will be published by Design Studio Press, and the author is a paleontologist. And Dr. Michael Habib, he is one of the foremost paleontologists working in the field today. His specialty is um, animal locomotion and um, biomechanics, but he has this particular love for pterodactyls and flying creatures. Nice. Anyway, he is one very fascinating person. He's He has consulted for many movies, including Smog for Lord of the Rings. Oh, boy. Walking with Dinosaurs. I mean, nice. the list goes on. And um, he's a regular contributor to Scientific American, National Geographic. He, anyway, he's a very fascinating person. He's one of these people, you say, just talk. I'll just listen for the next two Right, minutes. yeah. I don't need to ask you anything. Just yeah. <laughs> say words. Right. So anyway, um, I met him 
at an annual conference for the um, Guild of Natural Science Illustrators. And we just started talking and came up with this idea for a, a book on, on flying animals, what, how you make them fly and how, especially, you know, for creature design and for the animation industry. And we cover the gamut from how do birds launch themselves into the air to how do you get a horse flying <laughs> into the air? And then we, right. have, we have dragons and we've made up some other animals. We've made up some very interesting bat creatures. Um, and then actually, instead of pegasuses, we did hippogriffs. Nice. Because oh, I love those. Mm. Way cool. You know, how would you like to have a big carnivorous flying horse coming after you? <laughs> <clears throat> no, thank you. Yeah, they would be definitely at the top of the food chain. <laughs> and so, and there's flight cycles. So we, we cover bird anatomy, bat, bat anatomy, um, pterodactyls. There's lots of pterodactyls in there. And then fantasy creatures, all the way from Asian dragons to Western dragons to dragons that live on other planets. And um, then we have griffins our griffins are house griffins would you like to have a pet house griffin you know yes please and, uh, i would i guess it depends on what they eat <laughs> whatever they want to <laughs> probably not then because those leftovers are mine oh okay we have flying monkeys um anyway it's, so it's basically what does it take to make an animal be able to fly believably and not you know magically but believably right it's the physics of it and, and you know the musculature and everything it let you know like we saw talking about your original pegasus drawing that you had yeah. of how you know massively oversized the wings would have to right. be for yes. that to even be practical right yeah that's and very the, cool and the hippogriffs also have massively you know huge long long wings as well and uh rather toothy grins is is also but <laughs> there's a there's a creature on your art station that i wonder is it if it's in this book the rhino dino dragon um no actually that came way earlier but i was playing with the idea of making you know a dragon is more like an idea of something mm -hmm. and so that was my version of creating a dragon from a rhinoceros so cool it's so yeah. i've never seen anything like this that, that uh, drawing actually was the drawing that made me uh want to ask you about monster hunter because i felt like that creature could have been directly injected into that series and oh. I, I i i saw that and i was like whoa i wonder if you've you know seen this series or heard of it or anything because it just it felt so accurate to like that kind of you know intimidating dragon but also very unique and and kind of this Know, realistic hybrid thing but yeah i, I was also a, <laughs> steve and i were preparing for the episode and both of us were like one two three rhino dino dragon like we both <laughs> said it at the same time <laughs> so it was <laughs> super cool yeah um i had not at that one when i did that one i had not seen any monster monster hunter work at that at that point in time i was just was playing around i, I put a little bit of ceratopsian anatomy in the hip area i would i say um now that i think about it but um Mostly, we're just saying, I'm just going to play around with the idea of a dragon and just not do a strictly like reptilian dragon, but let's just create one from my rhinoceros. Yeah. And then later on in um, science and creature design, I created another type of very, very long dragon 
created for my rhinoceros too. Yeah. So I actually, can I be annoying and ask you a, a question? So uh, how you, how you always design creatures with like a, an environment in mind. Mm-hmm. So the color scheme of the rhino dino dragon, he's blue and red and white. Mm-hmm. What, what environment would you picture him living in with that kind of camouflage? Well, I actually kind of pictured him as more kind of in a subtropical um, environment. A lot of times animals that are brightly colored live in jungle settings. Okay. And you think about, you know, parrots, for example. Sure. And the inspiration for the color of that particular one was from the Tokei gecko, which is, you know, basically a bluish gray, but, you know, basically blue with with orange spots on it. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking of the Tokay gecko when I when I did the rhino dino dragon. I just gave him more like stripes instead. Right, right. Just went a little bit, had some fun with it. Okay, that was that was an awesome answer. <laughs> I just wanted to be <laughs> in, I wanted to be annoying and be like, all right, Terrell, I'm gonna quiz you on your own stuff. <laughs> did you maybe not think about this? Oh, of course you did. Of course you did, and that's why I'm like, oh, there's got to be a good answer. Awesome. All right. So, flying monsters. When is that going to be released? It should be released later, probably late 2021. I've just delivered the illustrations to the publisher, and um, the author is going over all the footnotes right now to make sure that everything's matching. And uh, um, I'll be, then after that's all approved, I'll just um, add in the, there's lots of anatomy um, in there, so I'm going to be adding the captions for the anatomy, like, you know, skull with a line and, femur with a line and so people mm-hmm. can say okay here's so each each section will have anatomical drawings so people can learn the anatomy of these animals whether it's a hammerhead bat whether it's a pteranodon or, or you know, whether it's a big parrot or a prehistoric bird i mean all that basic natural real life anatomy is in there and then also many of the imaginary animals including the dragon the western dragon also mm-hmm. have anatomical charts and so does a hippogriff so you're going to get a lot of anatomy instruction in there as well as just fun sci-fi stuff awesome <laughs> i mean i'm first in line terrell you, you don't got to sell the book anymore to me i mean i, I you got you got you got it yes yeah. <laughs> yes please <laughs> um awesome awesome stuff um so we do have a couple of um listener, listener questions, questions. So Tim, I think you were going to take the lead on that. Sure. Yeah. So um, just want to give a shout out to some of our listeners that have have kind of written in and wanted to ask you some questions, Terrell. So uh, we have Jason Duncan who asks, uh, "What is your favorite piece of art of all time?" From anywhere by anybody. Yes. Uh, that's so hard. I know, <laughs> right? It's one of those questions, right? You're like, how do I even answer this? I guess I love, again, the murals by J.S. Maternus that he did for the Smithsonian. Right now, mm-hmm. they've been rolled up and archived happily. They're being saved um, as, as far as on a scientific type of um, artwork. But as far as, say, art from the great masters, like, say, from the Renaissance or in art, art history, mm-hmm. there is a beautiful painting by Caravaggio, um, and it's about, it's I believe St. Paul on the road to Damascus and it's where the future apostle Paul has fallen off his horse and he's just laying flat on his back with his arms extended he's in shock mm-hmm. and 
the horse is being led over his body. And this is a real horse, a beautifully painted pinto horse. And the horse is very carefully stepping over St. Paul, just the way a real horse would. If um, horses don't like to step on a step on you or anything, say you fell off your horse, a horse will do all it can not to step on you. Mm-hmm. And the horse is looking down at St. Paul. It's a very tender, tender scene. And most, unfortunately, um, during the Renaissance, horses, even though there were horses around all over, were not really depicted very well. I, people were more reinterpreting ancient Roman statuary of horses rather than mm. painting the real thing. But Caravaggio, he went, he was like the Norman Rockwell of his age as far as looking at what was real. Yep. And the, that, that painting is actually more about the horse than it is about St. Paul. Right. Yeah, it, it's got it captures this very like sheepish wow. carefulness as opposed yeah. to, you know, the rearing up and the triumphant yeah. majesty of, of riding yeah. a horse and everything. Wow. Right. Yeah. And I, I I have you know, I ride at least four, five times a week. That's what I do when I'm not drawing. It's a nice balance to my life. And that's what he, he captured how horses are as opposed mm-hmm. to how we think they should be. Right. Yeah, I mean that's that's very commendable and something you didn't see a lot in that time. Yeah, awesome. Well, Jason Duncan, that was a heck of an answer for your. Question. Yeah, yeah. There you go, Jason. Um, so we have. <laughs> thank you for that have, question. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, we have another question from Shelby Croto from Amalgamania, our friends uh, and other podcasting land. Um, and she asks, "What was your favorite creature that you created, and why? Maybe it's the one you're most attached to, the one that you have, you know, just a special place in your heart for." Oh goodness, we're, I, I see we're talking about movies and or things like that that I've worked on. Um, that's a hard one because I each each production is so has been so much fun. So personal, well, right? As far as um, I, I do have a, a fondness for the Sando Aqua Monster a lot. I mean, yeah, that's just huge huge creature that I can proudly say can eat Godzilla because she's so huge. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I, I loved working, working on her. I mean, there's other creatures I enjoyed in the stampede scene. They just go by so quickly. I just kind of think, Oh, just stop the camera. Just, just stop so we can see. Right. But, so for, for Star yes. Wars, I certainly loved working on that, the Sondo. Um, I have a special fondness for the um, for the moose in Brother Bear, mm. I, I I love drawing hoofed mammals, and moose are just such crazy animals. They're like they have a very prehistoric feeling to them. There's this mm-hmm. huge deer with these big palmate antlers and these long long legs, mm-hmm. and they are as larger larger than many horses, and but yet. They are just so much fun. I was so, I felt so fortunate to, to be able to to do them. I mean, it's not, it's it's not um, hoof mammals aside from horses, and don't make that much of appearance in in movies and things. And it's a shame because they're so beautiful and wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's usually things with claws and teeth, usually yeah. the, the mm-hmm. predators. That's why I love the quiet moments of there's a little thing on a tree 
Um, and obviously we did see some, some horse-like creatures um, in Avatar, yes. as we were talking. Right. Yep. Uh, yes. The horse, the horses in that were my favorite. I They're loved. wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely um, so just just to be annoying, Tim got to be annoying already. I'm going to be annoying too. I'm just going to insert a question here to kind of piggyback on Shelby's. Uh, do you have a favorite creature from a movie or something that you did not create, like something like that, or uh, oh my goodness, maybe the two legged lizard from King Kong 1933? I don't know. <laughs> you know, not not projecting or anything. I loved Phil Tibbetts' Tauntauns. Oh my God! It's amazing. She just said the Tauntaun, Tim. I love the Tauntaun. I know Tauntaun, Steve's favorite. The Tauntauns are my favorite. <laughs> when I when I saw that, and I was in high school, you know, when I saw that, I was I said, "Ah, oh, that's so beautiful." And then years <laughs> later, I was finally was able to meet Phil Tippett's. He oh wow! Him to the studio to do a little talk for his staff, his team, his team, and I was so. I was I was so much in awe of him and uh, Tauntaun Master. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the Tauntaun Whisperer. The Tauntaun Whisperer. Yes. Um, and it's it's interesting um, in Wildlife of Star Star Wars. Actually, the Tauntaun page always stuck out to me because you actually expanded yeah. the race into all these different subspecies of like yeah. climbing Tauntauns and glacier uh-huh. Tauntaun. Was that just something that you ran with for fun? You're like, I want to I want to expand on this because I love them. Like. Yeah, I, I, I did. There were some, there were some um, ta- different concepts of tauntauns that Rafa Corey did. He did a couple other little um, variations, and I took some of those variations and expanded upon them. Um, and, but the tauntaun, like the bontha, has a relationship with human beings. Hmm. And so I wanted to explore those animals to more depth because of that relationship that they have with human beings. Just like with the Bonthas, the relationship with the sand people, and which that the story behind that is I made all that stuff up. Now it's in Wikipedia, but all of that <laughs> stuff of wildlife of Star Wars, you know, I, when I was coming up with that, you know, we'd come up with ideas and I would run it past George because he, be, you know, all that belongs to him. And then mm-hmm. he would approve these, these facts. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. The air quote facts. Yeah. Uh-huh. So now yeah, I remember kind of you gave you, you gave the Banthas like a long tongue. Yes, I did. That was something that we didn't see in the movies. That is true. Because I always wondered how they ate. They have short yeah. necks, but they don't have a trunk. Right. And I felt it was probably me not conducive to their survival if they had to kneel to eat mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. So I said, if they don't have a trunk, they must get their food another way. And I thought, oh, giraffes have long tongues. So there's a precedent yeah. there. And just getting uber long tongues. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely love it. If I if I'm remembering correctly, there's a there's a illustration on on that page where you actually are showing like the cross section of the skull, how the the tongue actually like yeah. uh, kind of reels up like a garden hose up in yeah. the up in the cheek or something. Yeah, and that's what happens with with um, butterflies. Gotcha. Oh man, that's so awesome. And and also um, woodpeckers. Oh really? Oh yeah, with how they like kind of reach deep into the the trees yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I did not know yeah. that. So I mean, we've got all these alien animals doing all these alien things here on our planet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. I, I know. Actually, that's one of the things. Steve and I have said this before. We've like you go to the zoo and you just take giraffes for granted, and you're like, look at a giraffe though. Yeah. How insane does a giraffe look? And we yeah. just we're so used to it, you know. And yeah. it's like if if you were to crash land on Earth and the first thing you saw was a giraffe, like I don't know, I just feel like it's the right. Weirdest we take thing. it for granted, 
Like, what if the but, Moas were still alive? What if there was still a giant Moa? Yeah. Would you take that for granted? Yes, we would. But now it's like, oh my God, I would, I would give anything to see a giant Moa. Oh my God, that's amazing. But like the giraffe is right over there going, yeah. hey, hello. Um, Hi, I'm super cool. I'm amazing. I'm basically yeah. a Brachiosaurus. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, awesome. So I, we have one final question. Um, prepare yourself. It's a silly one. Uh, so we have fantasy author Tim Baird uh, who asks, did you ever draw any concepts where Jar Jar Binks was eaten by any of the giant ocean creatures during their trip through the planet's core? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I did not. I did not do that. But you know, we, we have had myself, my my colleagues have had many, many conversations about um, about uh, Jar Jar and what we came up with is that you know he he needed he you know he was down and out you know Gungan actor and he needed some work so he took you know took the job and. And he's done pretty well. I mean, all his kids go to Ivy League schools now. He's married to this really hot Gungan babe, you know, and he's just laughing all his way to the bank because, believe it or not, he made a lot of money for Lucasfilm. Looky, looky, Misa not doing so bad now. You know, I just want to, I just want (laughs) to rewind 13 seconds. Uh, The phrase really hot Gungan babe. Yeah, has never been been uttered before. That might have been a first. I think that's maybe never been said, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You've created a unique string of words. Congratulations, Terrell. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) And thank you uh, to all our Retroids who asked those fun questions and for participating in the episode. Um, Thank you so much, Terrell, for doing this. Obviously, uh, the episode went long, but that technically... Uh, is kind of par for the course for us. We tend to have these long interviews. They just kind of ramble on and we have fun and I hope you had a, a good time. And Oh, uh, I did. Thank, thank you, you so much. So much for being part of our very silly, very little show. And uh, it really uh, has meant the absolute world to me and 8-Bit Alchemy over there. Absolutely. Um, so thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Um, before we go, do you have any, you've sort of touched on this already but I, I sort of wanted to end with um, you giving some, some advice to the people listening. Um, is there anything you can, you know, you, you said, make sure you're at the top of your game, make sure that your portfolio is as good as it can be. You know, we said like, oh, your art station or whatever. Is there any other advice you can give to anybody who might be listening who's an aspiring creature designer or just anyone looking to get into art professionally because it's, it's not easy? Right. Um, and I, you know, I said, I'm, I'm an author. I know a lot of authors, a lot of us, uh, you know, make some cool stuff and it's, it's, it's hard to get into it full time and, and make actually, you know, yeah. a career out of it. Do you have any advice, uh, maybe on that? Yes, I do. And it's, it's the same thing. I, I tell my, my students, I teach a course in creature anatomy for schoolism, www.schoolism.com, which is an online um, concept art school, very, very good, um, is that, yes, this is a, a difficult career and there's a lot of competition because a lot of people want to do this. And so one thing that's really important is, is persistence um, and observation of the real world and, of course, um, becoming competent at the various fundamentals of art, like I just mentioned perspective, color theory, and human anatomy, things like that. But there's three things that you need to be cognizant of. I call them the three P's. Um, and don't, you're never going to be perfect. Your art is never going to be perfect. The thing is, with perfectionism, that can lead to procrastination. 
and then that ultimately will lead, leads to paralysis. And you got to be kind to yourself. You got to realize that you're going to be learning and improving all the rest of your life every day. And you perfectionism or being perfect in art is never going to happen. However, excellence is possible. So she for excellence, not being perfect. And then by realizing that, then you, you open up the world to yourselves and be content to always be learning, to always be a student, and to always being open to improving. Um, that is the most important thing I can say as far as a career like, like this one. You got to be kind to yourself. And, you know, that's the reason God created the eraser and the delete and the delete key. They're <laughs> useful. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's so true. And I think that's something that is, is true in so many facets of life of things that people endeavor to do and maybe don't ever get to because they're so worried about it being yeah. just so and just right. And it's, it's, it's better to, create and keep moving than to, than to just um like you said become paralyzed by that like you know strive for perfection because ultimately art isn't perfect and shouldn't be perfect and you have no. to just keep going just keep working on it if it's not quite right that's okay you know just just do more just make more of yeah. it you know and i think that's just such a beautiful sentiment so that's yeah. That's wonderful. And, and honestly, you know, one person's perfection is that person's perfection anyway. There's no, you know, we're not a society of machines. So, you know, often flaws are are what makes things beautiful. Right. And one other thing I would add is have your own voice. Don't, don't try to be or try to draw or try to paint just like your favorite artist, because they're always, they are always going to be evolving and improving and such. And, for a very practical reason, art director needs to show needs to be able to tell you guys apart. <laughs> <laughs> right, you can't want you don't want to pay too much, uh, you know, inst- or take too much inspiration from something. It's good to be inspired, but not to be uh, derivative. You know, like yeah. you, you want to to definitely have right. your own flavor. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Awesome stuff. Well, thank you once more, uh, Terrell, for stopping by. We really appreciate it. I'm I'm gonna. Go get the keys and let you out of the brig. Okay, thank you. And if uh, if there are any crumpets left, I think I'm going to probably sell them on eBay because they're going to be worth money. I'm telling you. Okay. <laughs> um, so thank you so much. And uh, Retroids, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We certainly enjoyed uh, making it for you. And uh, if you haven't jumped ship by now, we uh, we really appreciate you sticking around with us for another long interview, as we sometimes do. And uh, we will see you guys next week on another regular episode of Retro Redoctopus. I've been your host, Parasite Steve, a.k.a. Steve of Destruction, though nobody calls me that. With me, as always, is my buddy, Ape and Alchemy. And for for Tell Whitlatch, we'll say thank you and good night. Good night. So on the show, I'm Parasite Steve, and Tim is 8-Bit Alchemy, but Steve and Tim work. Oh, okay. Um, All right. We have Goofy. <laughs> we have our, our Goofy call names. Our Goofy, because that's just, that's just how it works in the world of podcasting, you know, just right. everybody oh, has sure. names. Well, right. it, it's funny because um, in the world of conceptual illustration, our, 
my colleagues and I, we often have nicknames for each other, and I've been I've been called the Uniqueen. So the Uniqueen, that's awesome. Yeah, because I, <laughs> nice. I, I love horses and I love to ride and, and all of that. So they so I suppose supposedly their backstory for me that is that what I how you see me is just a disguise. I'm actually a, a magical unicorn and the queen of all the unicorns. So. <laughs> yeah, You're just, you know, masquerading as a human by day. Yeah, and. right. And every time you see a horse, that's actually they're in disguise. They have like their horns are invisible. So. <laughs> well, it's like in the last unicorn, you know, uh, only only young girls can see the horn. That's right. true. Only the pure in heart can see yeah. the horn. And That's mommy, it. and mommy Fortuna. For mommy Fortuna. Yeah, for yeah. Of course, yeah. you know she's she's just kind of evil and has magical. Right. She 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 can cheat. She can just see him. <laughs> yeah, she has a, she has <laughs> a, yeah, a loophole. 